The Dance Edit podcast is brought to you by Jackrabbit Dance. Jackrabbit is the industry's most reliable dance studio management software. If you're a studio owner, you know how important class management software is. Jackrabbit is going to make your life so much easier. Their software is cloud-based, powerful, and adaptable. And Jackrabbit has the industry's largest team of trainers, product coaches, and client success specialists to support you in your studio. You wouldn't accept less than the best from your students. Don't accept it from your software either. Visit jackrabbitdance.com and use the promo code DANCEMEDIA, all one word, for a free trial. Dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoyne. And I'm Lydia Murray. We are editors at Dance Magazine and Dance Spirit Magazine, and in today's episode, we will be talking about the continued Broadway shutdown and its newly announced diversity audit, highlighting the TikTok dance creators asking for the credit they deserve for viral dance challenges, and how that issue ties into larger issues about the ways intellectual property laws do and should apply to online content discussing the success of Sunday night's all-virtual BET awards and how the show is adapted to suit remote artists and remote audiences, and having a candid discussion about how us dance people can look after our mental health right now, as requested by some of our listeners. Um, Are you all just exhausted right now? (laughs) I mean, I took a nap right before we sat down to record this, so I'd say yes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Everyone is, is is feeling that way. And I think part of that is because it's hard to process everything that's happening in the world at the moment. There are just too many stories to read. There's too much to catch up on. Um, I've actually found that digests, little daily roundups, are the best way for me at least to get information right now. I'm subscribed to all these different news-related email digests because it's just enough information so you don't feel cut off from the news, but you also don't feel like you're drowning in it. Um And I just wanted to give a shout out to our daily email news digest, the original Dance Edit, which was around before there was a podcast. Um, It turned one year old yesterday. Yay. Yay. Time is fake. Time is fake. It's been a year. (laughs) What? It's been a year. It's been a year. Um, But so if you are looking for a way to keep up with everything happening in the dance world in about a minute a day, because sometimes that's all you can handle, um, take a moment to subscribe to the newsletter at thedanceedit.com. So about all that dance news, we're going to begin the episode as usual with a dance headline rundown, touching on some of the top newsy stories from the past week. Uh, Courtney, will you start us off? Sure thing. Uh, So Cirque du Soleil is finally officially filing for bankruptcy and laying off 3,480 previously furloughed employees. Probably not the last casualty of this pandemic we'll be hearing about. The Paul Taylor American Dance Foundation has canceled the 2020 Paul Taylor American Modern Dance Season at the David H. Koch Theater at Lincoln Center due to COVID-19. It was scheduled to take place November 3rd through 22nd, and a piece created for the company by Lauren Lovett of New York City Ballet will be completed and premiered at a later date. Something to look forward to, at least. Uh, next news item, uh, former Dance Mom star Jojo Siwa was accused of putting a dancer in blackface for a recently released music video for her single Nonstop. It, the video was circus themed and the dancer in question was in costume as a monkey. 
Uh, Siwa vehemently denied the allegations, writing in an Instagram post, we're talking about kids dressing up like circus animals. On a brighter note, Beyonce, everyone's queen, is dropping a new visual album, Black is King, later this month, and it will premiere on July 31st on Disney+. Plus. Reasons to keep that Disney Plus subscription after hashtag Hamilfilm. Um, so there was actually another major COVID-related dance announcement this week, and we want to get into that in our next segment. Uh, the Broadway League announced Monday that Broadway theaters would remain dark at least until January 3rd. Realistically, many shows seem to be looking to spring, not winter, for reopenings. Um, and in fact, two highly anticipated productions said before the announcement of the closure extension that they were postponing their openings until spring 2021. And there are two shows that we are pretty excited about. Uh, one of them, Flying Over Sunset, was going to mark Michelle Dorrance's Broadway choreographic debut. It was supposed to debut this past spring, uh, got pushed back, and has now been pushed back again. Dates to be announced, but they're saying sometime spring 2021. The other one, The Music Man, a revival on Broadway starring Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster, uh, was announced forever ago it now feels uh was supposed to be opening this october has now pushed back to the spring so previews are aiming for april 7th with an opening night set for may 20th um and the broadway league has some plans for the downtime that we're getting in this extended closure so on sunday just before disclosing its extension of theater closures um it announced that it would be undertaking an audit of diversity in the industry that decision came, of course, in the wake of widespread protests over racial injustice, including very powerful testimony from and advocacy by members of the theater community. And the announcement was met with some skepticism. So the Broadway League says that it's hiring an external company to assess every aspect of the industry from backstage to onstage and production to administration. But there are some weak points and some causes for concern here. And Clint Ramos, the Tony Award-winning costume designer, recently pointed out some of these on Twitter for one, at least in the New York Times story about this, the name of the company conducting the audit was not disclosed. Also, the league cannot actually mandate that other organizations participate, which could render this ineffective or insufficiently effective. Um, and Ramos also pointed out that the league is changing its bylaws to make it easier for leaders of color to join the board. But this appears to be happening ahead of the audit, which could skew the results of the assessment. Um, the league's plans also include hiring an executive of diversity, equity, and inclusion, auditing their existing diversity initiatives. Uh, the New York Times mentioned 19 of those, but it's not completely clear what, what uh, all 19 of those are, um, and making anti-racism and unconscious bias training required for their staff and leadership. But it will be interesting to see what actually happens as a result of this, because without significant change to the power structure of Broadway, these uh, efforts might not reach deeply enough. Well, it's also interesting to note that the Broadway League itself is actually quite a small organization in terms of uh, number of staff. It does have kind of outsized influence because they are who oversee the Tony Awards. They are who people go through for various negotiations. So they do have a lot of power, but it is concentrated within a very small number of people. And so I think the question is going to be how much influence, if they do manage to make these positive forward steps within this small organization, how is that going to actually reach out to all the constituent members, et cetera, et cetera? And Drew Shade, the founder and creative director of Broadway Black, uh, addressed this in the New York Times story as well. And he mentioned that this was a start, but that the next conversation that could take place is about distribution of power in the Broadway industry and what steps they'll take to make that more equitable, diverse, and inclusive. 
yeah. So we are hopeful that there is positive change on the way, but our our new theme now is this is the first step of a a long journey. The work um, has to continue. The work goes on. Um, meanwhile, even as theaters are dark in digital spaces, dance life continues apace, especially in that wild digital space known as TikTok, um, which leads to our next segment. Last week, BuzzFeed News posted a story discussing how TikTok dance creators are asking for proper credit for their now viral dances. And not crediting dance creators has been a problem on the platform for a long time, but now the creators' voices are finally really beginning to be heard. Many of these artists are Black, and their accusations are leveled at the platform's big teen stars who are predominantly white. Um, TikTok has spurred a ton of creativity, partly because from the beginning it felt freewheeling and, and lawless, kind of anything goes, but that same lawlessness has also led to straight up appropriation. Earlier this year, this issue of credit for viral dances on TikTok came to the forefront with the New York Times profile on Jaliah Harmon. Jaliah Harmon created the mega viral renegade dance challenge. And initially, she was not given credit for it, despite asking for credit numerous times on common threads and so forth, basically saying, hey, this is mine, to no avail. And as TikTok influencers with bigger followings did the dance, they got recognition and business opportunities as a result, but she was left out. But since the Times story brought her situation to light, the internet and largely Black Twitter mobilized to get her what she deserved. And she now has millions of followers and several high-profile deals with brands. But um, race is an important factor in her story because, of course, there's a long history of Black creators' work being used by non-Black artists and then being shut out of the resulting profits. And on TikTok, questions have been raised about the possibility of its algorithm reinforcing racial bias. There is a BuzzFeed story back in February that talked about collaborative filtering. Collaborative filtering basically means that the app will recommend an account based on who its followers are already also following. So if, for example, most top creators' followers are also following mostly you know, white blondes, then creators who look like that will get elevated above the other groups. Um, and there are, there are other similar issues. Well, and, and these kinds of issues also bring up a lot of other thorny issues around how intellectual property laws apply to mm. virtual content. Like who actually owns a TikTok dance and how might you copyright it? Um, now that there's been this flood of digital dance content, we essentially have to come up with new copyright systems that protect creators while still allowing for the creativity that's endemic to online spaces, especially young online spaces like TikTok. Well, it's also worth noting, I think, that like historically speaking, like the way that intellectual property law works in the United States, like can you technically copyright choreography? Yes, but it's way thornier than it is for something like music or something like like basically any other art form you could think of. Um, and so not only have we never really been good at copyright law for dance, we're really, 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 really not prepared for copyright law for dance that can be disseminated this quickly. Um, there's a really interesting LA Times article talking about how there needs to be a new rights clearance system that's more accessible just to like avoid these issues. And I was looking at it mostly from a music industry perspective and even that sounds very complex and thorny to get into. So where do you even start doing that for dance? And how can we reimagine um, these intellectual property laws in a way that's actually going to benefit people? Yeah, it will be interesting to see how that evolves and affects the development of virtual content going forward as well. Um, 
Uh, in our fourth segment, we actually want to highlight some highly successful virtual content, namely the BET Awards, which were held entirely online on Sunday night. Um, the virtual show was well-received for many reasons, um, particularly because of the both thoughtful and searing ways it reckoned with pro-Black sociopolitical uprisings. Um, but we wanted to talk specifically about how the production adapted live performance to suit both its remote artists and its remote viewers, um, because it made full use of the opportunities that arise when your awards show isn't limited to an awards show stage. Um, so first of all, I'm going to try not to fangirl too much about Megan Thee Stallion's performance. It was a great example of what I think we talked about in a previous episode about logistical choices becoming part of choreography in the time of COVID, because the theme allowed the backup dancers to have masks on in a way that looked great and made artistic sense. And they were socially distanced by being in their own separate spaces on what looked like some sort of um, scaffolding. And it was entertaining and it was beautiful. And there was absolutely no sacrifice of quality or production value. And the same goes for uh, Chloe and Hallie. Their performance had top-notch production. The dancing was great to watch, at least in my opinion. Um, it really exemplified a shift toward dance performances that are geared specifically uh, for video and for at-home um, consumption. And we normally see this in the commercial dance world, but it's probably going to cross over more to the concert dance world out of necessity. Um, and I think it's another hallmark of that blurring line between concert and commercial dance that we've also talked about a lot. Yeah, there was a great dance magazine story about that recently, talking about how the commercial and concert dance worlds are getting closer and closer. And that, I think, Lydia, that sounds exactly right. It's, it used to be that these commercial projects were the ones most commonly designed to be viewed on a screen, but now everything is angled that way out of necessity, which makes the differences between those genres seem even less pronounced. Um, you know, in all the world's a music video, it's like, how, how does our approach to that world change? And um, also the, the direct-to-video experience might have implications for audience engagement in the dance world. Um, KCON, which is a Korean entertainment and cultural festival in multiple cities worldwide, um, that went digital this year and performances were designed to be streamed and there were video-based meet and greets and similar events for fans. And I think that that theme of connecting with audiences directly will happen um, more in concert dance in video form or uh, remote form as well. Which brings us back to, okay, let's talk about the intellectual property law so we can do this. What if mm -hmm. artists still getting paid for their work? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how old school dance organizations, because they have to, will start thinking and acting like the multimedia companies that they've now suddenly become. Like, mm. And that includes respecting intellectual property online, just as they would if they were programming a show in a physical theater. It's like figuring out new systems to make that all possible. That's the uh, LA Times article pointed out. We're, we're really in this new era where we're redefining what constitutes a live performance or production. And it raises questions like which territories are receiving these broadcasts and how are the broadcasters compensated and so forth. So it'll be really interesting to see how this, um, how this evolves going forward. A lot of questions to be answered. So in our last segment, we want to address a, a listener-suggested topic that feels critically important right now, which is how we can and should be taking care of our mental health. Um, because the future is fuzzy and the present is disorienting. Those of us who are dancing are unable to be in our bodies the way that we're used to being, and we don't have the regimented schedules we're accustomed to and we're unsure about our jobs. Those of us who are otherwise involved in the arts are worried more generally about the future of dance and also unsure of our jobs. 
And the wave of protests over racial injustice have been freeing and empowering and productive within the dance world and well beyond it, but also emotionally taxing and destabilizing. So how can we, how should we as dance people cope with all of this? We are all dealing with a lot, of course, as you just said, and honoring your mental health is so important. And toward the beginning of the pandemic, the Harvard Business Review released an article titled, That Discomfort You're Feeling is Grief. And a helpful takeaway from that for me came from the world's leading expert on grief, David Kessler. And he said that it's common to have feelings about our feelings. Like, I feel sad, but I shouldn't feel that. Other people have it worse and so on, when we should really just stop at that first feeling. It's okay to feel however however you feel. Um, and in his words, your work is to feel your sadness and fear and anger, whether or not someone else is feeling something. And also around that time, Minding the Gap published a blog post with this quote that I found important. If dancers can embrace feelings of vulnerability that are coupled with the conscious awareness of their emotional resources, then they can maintain a healthy balance between feelings and adaptation. A really important message for dancers specifically to hear, since there, it just it runs counter to that constant pressure that we often feel to always be working and always be positive and always be moving forward. And it's like, no, it's okay to take a beat and sit in your feelings and sit with them. Yeah, I mean, and self-care is in and of itself a radical act. Um, and it's also worth noting, especially when you are engaging with work like racial injustice and work on thorny and difficult topics, on top of the fact that, like, guys, we are still in the middle of a global pandemic, and that is a lot to be dealing with. We're dealing with so much right now. So you can't do your best work if you aren't honoring how you feel and if you aren't taking steps to take care of yourself. Some days you might need to take a step back and that is okay as long as you are taking that step back and using it to recharge so that you can dive back in. And another thing is, you know, professional help, like we, it's still extremely stigmatized in America, full stop. And I think maybe even a little bit more so for dancers, because again, we do have that mentality of, no, I just have to tough it out. Like if I can't tough it out, that means I'm not good enough to make it. It means I don't deserve to make it. And all of that is completely untrue. T like tell that little voice in your head to go away. And uh, seeking out professional help is actually one of like the bravest things you can do. And frankly, kind of everyone should be in therapy. Um, and oftentimes that it does end up being like there are financial implications there. Uh, I do want to call out uh, Leo Zelenska of OK, Let's Unpack This uh, has been collecting a list of uh, mental health practitioners who are doing pro bono work for dance artists. And you can find that information at OKOKOK.org. That's O-K-A-Y. We'll link to it in the episode description to make sure you can find it. Um Yes, please get the help that you need. Please take the time that you need. Please take care of yourself. Thanks everyone for joining us. We will be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. And in the meantime, keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, guys. Bye, everyone. The 
Dance Edit podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about the Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.